Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in chapter 11 and verse 1 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 869 if you are using a church Bible, page 869. Luke 11 and 1 through 4. Before we uh, look at our text together, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, as we come before your word uh, by the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would glorify yourself uh, in our lives and within each of our own hearts, that we might be a people who value uh, Jesus Christ above all things and find much joy in doing so. It's in Jesus' name we ask, amen. Our passage this morning is about prayer And our text contains what is often called the Lord's Prayer. Not in the sense that Jesus, our Lord, is the one who prays this, and therefore it is the Lord's Prayer, but because Jesus is the one who gives this prayer to us as a model for his disciples to pray like this. Not just reciting it verbatim, but that our prayers would be principally so. Jesus is teaching his followers here how to pray. And this passage comes right on the heels of a beautiful portrait of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word, breathing it in, drinking in everything that he is teaching, eating of everything coming out of the mouth of God, that the essence of discipleship is encapsulated in this image of Jesus' follower at his feet. Our text is the other side of that same coin. We have to listen to God as well as speak to God. There is an importance in hearing the word of God and now that of prayer in devotional life. The importance of which J.R. Packer writes, prayer is the spiritual measure of men and women in a way that nothing else is so that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. We read in verse one. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Here we see an observation of prayer and then a desire to learn to pray. They see it and then they want it. And I want you to notice the method of Jesus' discipleship here with his followers, that he models and lives and exemplifies primarily before he teaches. And we've seen this. Jesus demonstrates love while actually loving real people. He prioritizes preaching by using every opportunity he could find to preach. And here it is that Jesus is found praying, which is the impetus for one of his disciples to ask him about prayer. That the way that Jesus lives, his lifestyle develops in his people a curiosity about that very lifestyle. Jesus didn't first teach a class on prayer, but over and over, again and again, he kept ducking away to pray, and his disciples see that. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with teaching classes on prayer and reading books on it and whatnot. Jesus is about to teach this disciple and all of us about prayer right here. But this comes after the disciples notice something about him, so much so that he, they ask him, teach us to pray. Again, they see it, and so they want it, and then he gives it. 
And we are much the same that there must be first in looking upon Jesus a desire to be like Jesus in following him. I think for many of us, we don't pray because we don't want to pray. And there's nothing uh, complex about that or groundbreaking. It's just the simple truth of the matter. We don't desire to pray because we might not see prayer as a legitimate solution to the many things we might be going through. Because we don't observe it, we don't always believe in it, and we don't always see uh, it in action and whatnot. That's not the case with the disciples here. They've been with Jesus for a couple of years now. And they have had front row seats to a variety of spectacular things, no doubt. Front row seats to every kind of miracle Jesus accomplishes. They have seen paralytics walk, lepers made clean, demons cast out. They've seen food multiplied to feed the masses, the dead raised, all with their very own eyes. They've heard teaching like no one else had ever taught before. They've seen crowds of thousands upon thousands flocking to Jesus, stalking his every step just to listen to him. One time, Jesus has to preach from a boat to people on shore just to create that distance because they were mobbing him. But the disciples don't ask here, Jesus, Lord, teach us to multiply food. And they don't request of him, please show us, God, how to generate a crowd or guide us into how to heal the worst of illnesses. No, they ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray because the disciples recognize something about Jesus, that there has been over the years a direct link in their minds between Jesus's prayer life and his ministry to the people that brought them to a place where they come to realize that we need to learn to pray like Jesus prays. And like other men of God, pray like John the Baptist, who also teaches his followers to be a people of much prayer. That there's something about Jesus's communion with the Father that really is the basis for absolutely everything else. Now, we've seen this in our study of Luke, even perhaps without seeing it. Because there's certain things that catches the eye. There's certain things that our, our minds can fixate upon more than others. But throughout the book of Luke, Luke has been very intentional in presenting Jesus to us as a praying individual. From the very beginning of his ministry, Luke chapter 3, verse 21, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism, and the text says there that this occurs while Jesus has been praying. As Jesus' ministry begins to multiply and crowds come more and more to hear what he is saying, he would withdraw, Luke 5, 16 tells us, to desolate places to pray. He's not praying for show. He's not praying in front of the crowd. He's praying in communion with the Father apart from everyone. In choosing the disciples, Jesus prayed all night on a mountain, Luke 6, 12. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he prays in Luke 9, 18. The transfiguration when Jesus is revealed in all of his radiant glory occurs on a mountain where he is first praying, Luke 9, 28. When the 72 that Jesus sent out on a short-term mission trip return and show forth spiritual vitality, Jesus prays to the Father with joy over their salvation in Luke 10, 21, and 22. And here we are again that we find Jesus praying. When the disciples finally begin to inquire and desire how to be taught to pray, he has been praying, notably so, throughout the book of Luke. Our eyes don't always catch these things as being substantial, but prayer is interspersed throughout this account and will continue to be so as we study more and more. Philip Ryken, he makes the observation, usually we think of the life of Christ as a series of miracles 
parables and personal conversations culminating in the events of his passion, the cross, and occasionally interrupted by seasons of prayer. But we could just as well see his life the other way around as a series of private prayer times interspersed with ordinary events of his daily ministry because Jesus was a great man of prayer. There's something here, the cumulative effect of which struck Jesus' followers as they observed his living and listened to his teaching and witnessed his mighty actions, that the one desire they put together in this moment is, can you teach us to pray, Jesus? Because they recognize something powerful in a praying Messiah. Brothers and sisters, we will never uh, be a people eager to pray unless we see within Jesus all the motivation that we need. We continue in verse 2. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We see first here in the address of prayer, the term Father, that there is an intimate relational aspect of prayer from a follower of Jesus. That as Jesus prays Father, his people are also to pray Father. And secondly, uh, with that, we see a priority that springs forth from this kind of relationship, that his name and his kingdom are more important to his children than anything else. But first, the address Father. Prayer is ultimately an expression of an intimate relationship. And this is a relationship that Jesus grants to his people because, as Luke 10, tells us, no one can know the Father except the Son and to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We can only call God Father because Jesus reveals a Father to us. And this opening address shows to us the ultimate privilege that is ours in Jesus, that God the Father is somehow the believer's Father, which I think we have grown accustomed to this truth in both good and bad ways. Believers in the Old Testament, they rarely, if ever, address Yahweh as Father. I think Isaiah 63, 16 is one notable exception. There were more honorary titles for God. Elohim, Jehovah, Jireh. The Israelites did not address God in any kind of personal terms at all. And the idea of, of speaking to the Almighty in the same way as a child could speak to their own dad had been unheard of. There was this holy separation relationally that had always been felt by God's people. But here it is that Jesus teaches his followers here to pray just like how he prays. And in the recorded prayers we do have, Jesus always addresses the God in heaven by calling him Father. A notable exception is when he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is appropriate because in that moment he felt distance from the Father. But what Jesus is doing again is bringing us into the relationship that only exists within the Trinity, that somehow his people and his disciples can now address the God of the universe, the holy, holy, holy one whom Isaiah falls down before. We can address the God Almighty in the same fashion as the Son of God himself. And as a child would address his or her own dad, which is groundbreaking. But this is the relationship that Jesus brings us into. Over and over, the Bible shows us this to be the case <clears throat> for Christians that we have, John 1, 12, the right to become children of God. 
that we have received the spirit of adoption, Romans 8, 15 and 16, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit bears witness that we are his children. Prayer then is this expression of this intimate relationship. And we've grown accustomed to this in both good and bad ways. I think the bad for us is that sometimes we fail to recognize the utter privilege of crying out to God as Father without understanding the depth of intimacy that we can enjoy with our God because of the person and work of Jesus. Sometimes we just take it for granted that God is our Father and that he should hear our prayers. But I also think the good is such that we are comfortable. There's supposed to be a freedom and an unembarrassed and even confident approach to God, unencumbered by fancy addresses in much the same way as you see little kids run to their parents after school is over or cling to them during Sunday school pickup after service is over. Father, Dad, Confidence and love are to be the wings of our prayers. That's what Alexander McLaren is. To cry, Abba, Father, is the essence of all prayer. Almost nothing more is needed. And so firstly, Jesus is showing to his people that there is a relationship, an intimacy, a security, and confidence in the opening address of prayer that we cry out to our God as members of his own family. Secondly, there is a priority in our hearts and prayers because this relationship is so. We pray for the Father's name. We pray for the Father's kingdom more so than we do for our name and for our own little kingdoms. You know, the week before last, I took several days off and I got to spend time with the family and it was really good. I had to take that break and have uh, uninterrupted time with them and we got to venture off and try new foods and check out different parts of the island. And this past week, I took my oldest, Braden, who'd been helping uh, Laura out at home quite a bit. I took him with me to Costco to get some groceries and then to get some dinner. And I asked him, what do you want to eat? You want Costco, Pandas, Canes, Jersey Mike's, Sushi Man? And he says, well, what do you want to eat? And I say, well, what do you want to eat? And he says, what do you want to eat? I don't know if you've ever come to this kind of standstill before. I said, Braden, you've been helping out a lot. Just pick a place. I want to make you happy. And Brandon responds to me in that moment, I want what you want, Dad, as if somehow his joy is giving me what I want. There's this childlike deference. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not always the case. <laughs> but there is, much of the time, a childlike deference. It's often there. The, the believer, uh, the Christian, the follower of Jesus, the child of God, we want what God wants. We want what the Father wants. This is our highest want, and therefore we pray for it. We say, Father, hallowed it be your name. We want God's name, which is more than a title, really, but the very representation of his being to be hallowed or sanctified or treated as holy. We're not asking God, can you get more holy? He already is holy. But we're asking that there would be a recognition of that, that that would occur, that the Father's character attributes glory might be known, honored, and praised, and worshiped by all things in creation. This is the same prayer Jesus prays in John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name as he's speaking of his own death. That the child of God, the son there, would spend his life for the glory of his father's name. The honor of our God is a Christian's priority. And at the same time, we know that that hallowed name is not immediately or obviously known or recognized by most people today. You just have to watch TV for a couple of hours and see how dishonored God's name can be. 
This is much of the reason why we pray for the salvation of those we know, because we want them to know God. Because when people come to know him, then they will want to honor him, worship him, praise him, live for him, value him. We don't pray for salvation just so people get to avoid hell, although that is a very big deal but more so that worshipers of God be born again. I mean, this is why we pray for our own spiritual growth as well, that sin be defeated, humility be characteristic, that self-love die out, that our own natural regard for me, 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 would be cast out by love for him, 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 him. This all and more is encapsulated in the very first request coming out of this intimate relationship with the Father that we want his name to be hallowed, his reputation to be honored, his being to be worshiped, hallowed it be your name. And we also pray for his kingdom to come. In the person of Jesus, we know in Luke, uh, the kingdom has come near because the king is near. And he's preaching the kingdom of God. And in his miracles, we see this ability and authority of Jesus uh, to reverse sin's effects and to bring people into a different kind of rule and reign. But the miracles and the proclamation of the kingdom, they're more pointers and appetizers for what is to come, which is the ultimate fruition of God's kingdom. And we know it is not here entirely right now because things are not the way that they are supposed to be. There are kidnappings of 15-year-old girls on the beach, all different kinds of cancers, world hunger, wars and rumors of wars, disease rampant, hurricanes, drought, heat waves, leukemia, infertility, birth defects, physiological depression because some brains don't produce dopamine. There is gender confusion with every kind of human sexuality that is entirely inconsistent and antagonistic with God's design for our good, and yet it is also celebrated worldwide. There is sin rampant in almost every industry that humanity is part of, and even within the church. We read of scandals after scandal. We can go on and on, but since the day of humanity's fall and throughout the centuries, we know all the ways the kingdoms of the world have utterly fallen short. The Bible tells us in Romans 8 that creation, inanimate creation, actually groans in anticipation of something new so that creation will be set free from bondage to decay. Romans 8 tells us as well that the believer groans with creation for we long and we hope for something altogether different. What we witness throughout the world it can often make the believer's stomach churn, does it not? And we don't just have to read the news and shake our head at what is out there. We can look in the mirror and shake our heads when we look at what is inside us right here. We groan the same, for there is enough wrong inside, even the newest creation that makes us yearn for something better than what we have. It makes us yearn for sin to be forever dealt with, especially that one so that God might really rule completely within our own hearts. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray for the Father's kingdom and his rule and his ultimate reign. This is why the believer doesn't just try and set up his or her own, own kingdom here. Oh, I'm reading about kidnappings. I better move to a better neighborhood, own kingdom. Cancers, I better get the best of preventative medicines, get on a health, new health regime. Disease this, what's wrong with the body? Hunger coming, recession, inflation. Well, you know what I gotta do? I gotta build a little nest egg. 
and get better insurance and invest wisely, blah, 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 blah. These little stop gaps are not what we ultimately want. And our little kingdoms and our little homes and our little careers are not gonna last. But what they do is do a fantastic job of distracting us from what will last. The Father's kingdom is what we live for and pray for and desire and groan for. And Jesus is teaching his disciples this grand priority which springs from the relationship with the Almighty that each of us have who do believe. That we want what the Father wants. And we have a childlike deference because it is that what makes him honored, worshiped, glorified is what makes us most joyful. That his complete rule and reign is what makes us such a hopeful people in anticipation of it, that all of our eggs are in that basket. What ultimately and fundamentally separates believing prayers from unbelievers who just cry out when they're desperate for God to get them out of a bind is this relationship with God as Father, which expresses itself in God's interests above our very own. Now, if you're like me, then a lot of times in prayer, we skip over entirely God's name and God's kingdom and jump right into my name and my kingdom and my comfort and my family and this person needs healing and my needs and the claustrophobic confines of me, 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 me which really then fuels our desire to set up shop and no longer look forward or upward. And over time, a habit of prayer like this, it really does make us more oblivious to God's kingdom and what he is doing in the world, which makes then our smaller little kingdoms primary and of highest importance. That we can actually somehow know with more certainty how many points this player scored for my fantasy team than the spiritual status of people within our own family. Or I think more about that bumper sticker of my child or my grandchild is an honor student at blah, 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 blah. Is that straight on the bumper? More than I worry about the state of his or her soul. When we skip over God's name and God's kingdom, we can quickly become oblivious to it. There's a, a future prayer of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's about to be arrested, which means the cross, the scourging, the torture, the jeers, it is all coming. And he prays in Luke 22 and verse 42 and onward, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, this is a very honest picture of Jesus. He is dreading the cross, and yet he desires the cross. He both wants it and doesn't want it at the same time. And what happens to his body is that blood starts coming out of his pores because he dreads the cross this much and it's destroying him physically before he even hangs upon that cross. But what he prays immediately following is, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Do you think that this is the first time Jesus ever prayed something like that? That the Father's will, name, kingdom is more important than his own? No way. Jesus has been praying like this in his most crucial moments because he's been praying like this the most of his entire life. I think this is circular, that the more we pray for God's name and his kingdom, the more we actually desire God's name and his kingdom. And the more, therefore, we actually pray for it and then desire it. And the more God-centered we become and the more prayerful we really are. John Piper, he calls this a different atmosphere of praying, a higher one. God-honored, 
His worth and glory magnified. His rule more and more fully in the lives of the church, in our families, and in the community. That prayer is God-centered and God-exalting, and his interests are above our very own. And this is a kind of praying that Jesus wants his people to emulate. And so again, we firstly see in these verses an intimate relationship in the address Father. And we see as a result of this relationship, a priority that springs forth that his name and his kingdom are more important to his children than anything else. Verse three, we continue. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. You know, Jesus could have ended his instruction on prayer right at the end of verse two and it would have been a very fine prayer very godly, very centered on the Father's name and kingdom, and nothing else. Amen. But our Savior is very concerned about our own personal needs as well. Priority just means priority. It's not negation, as if somehow God's needs are unimportant. More than half of this prayer, actually like two-thirds of it, word count-wise, is devoted to us and to our own needs because the Father cares about each and every single one of you. And he loves to answer your prayers for your needs. And the first thing Jesus asks us, uh, tells us to pray for here is bread every day. Now, in the days of ancient Israel, there was a window of time where manna, bread, literally fell from the sky. This is heavenly bread. And at that period of time, that window, there was never any question as to who provides for our daily bodily needs. There was never any question to how much we are dependent upon him. We go outside, we look up, and then we get to eat. Who provides that? It's only God. Who keeps us alive? It's only God. But in the days of paychecks, uh, taxes, uh, stocks, Apple Pay, Amazon, Costco, around the corner, we often forget that our sustenance and our ability to earn and pay and provide, all of that finds its ultimate source in our creator and then we begin to take his provision for granted. We don't ask. We just work harder. God is the one yesterday and today who still provides for us, brothers and sisters. And when we pray for it, we confess and recognize it more and more. And then we become a more grateful people. And then we build that trust in him. But notice also that Jesus is not teaching us, give us each day our daily filet mignon. Because our needs are often not as numerous as we make them out to be. There's something very simple about daily bread that gives to us life and not luxury. Let me read to you from the book of Proverbs chapter 30 and verse seven. These are the words of a king named Agur. And he says there, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. There is a certain kind of wisdom that knows how luxury can often make us forget God and how poverty can make us profane his name and therefore give me only what is needful for me. There's a vast difference between need and greed. 
between what is a necessity and what is merely a want. And asking for daily bread helps us in bringing us to a place where we can be filled with gratitude that we have everything we need to live in this world. And by God's grace, he often does give to us even more than that. And to be content with his perfect provision, which may vary from person to person to person. You know, as a parent, I'm often uh, more anxious about the future of, of our children than I am about my own future. Looking at the cost of things and how much school is, how are they going to afford anything? What are these guys going to do for a living? Then I start to research college costs and potential careers and blah, 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 blah. I don't know if it's just me or I'm Chinese or what. But about a week ago in our Bible reading plan, we come to Psalm 37 and verse 25. And David says this there. He says, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread, which is exactly what we need to hear from time to time. Do we really believe that God gives to us sustenance every day? Do we really trust that God loves us to provide us exactly what it is we need? even if he has to rain it down from the sky. Is his word and trust in him really enough for us in a murky future? This is what Jesus reiterates in Matthew 6, when talking about food and clothing. And say, go look at food and go get some clothing. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Sometimes we can get so transfixed on what is minor, what we eat and what we wear and where we live and what we drive, that we forget altogether what is major, the glory of God and the gospel of Christ and a coming kingdom that will never, ever fade away. We worry so much about the material that we will often not occupy our minds with anything else. And this is why we are to pray like this and to seek the Father's honor and desire his kingdom, and ask him. Just ask him for what you need, because he does love to provide you with exactly what you need. And at the same time, he will protect you from becoming spoiled and so easily distracted or in too much want and be tempted to steal. And therefore, I think this is as much a prayer for provision as it is for godly contentment with what he has provided to every single one of us. But Jesus is also not only caring about physical needs, he teaches us to pray and ask for our spiritual needs as well. He shows us a prayer for forgiveness of our sins and for our forgiveness of other people who sin against us. And both are spoken within the same breath because they are intimately related to each other. It is good and it is very healthy to ever be aware how, of how often we each and we all fall very short. And this is something that goes against uh, modern psychology, which is consumed with self-worth and self-esteem and being who you are and being true to yourself. And that's the real key to a healthy life, that it's everyone's fault but your own. It's good that we are aware of how often we each and we all fall short. As much as we need uh, bread for our physical bodies is as much as we need the recognition of our remaining sin within each of our hearts and a realization that God's ongoing forgiveness of it. Notice that the prayer is owning the sin because they are our sins and not someone else's. Notice that we're not supposed to give excuses for them. We don't blame circumstances as a cause of them. We don't plead or argue our innocence. We simply pray for forgiveness. 
And for those of you who are newer, newer here, uh, we're not forgiven by God merely because we ask for it. Our sin uh, incurs something every single time we do. This verse shows to us with the language of debt, when we sin, someone has to pay a debt. You can accidentally hit our minivan outside and I can say to you, you know what? I'm feeling really good right now. Don't worry about that damage. I'll forgive you. Your debt is clean. But who then takes the debt? Someone always has to pay. Otherwise, that van's not getting fixed. Someone has to pay when there is sin because sin always incurs a debt. But the very one who teaches us to pray this very prayer is the one who chooses to incur all the debt of every single one who will put their trust in him. Jesus can't just say, I forgive you and sweep it under the rug and sin's removed. No, what Jesus does is he says, I will pay it. And this is the significance of the cross because the wages of sin is death. That's what sin earns, Romans 6, 23. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of the debt our sin has incurred, of which price is death and death eternal. Jesus pays for that upon the cross, that although sinless and holy and perfect and righteous and therefore debtless, he is literally treated as if he sinned our sin and as if he were sin himself, that through his atoning death upon that cross, our debt is paid. And through his resurrection from the grave, that shows that his payment is proven to be accepted. This is what we call the gospel. It's good news. It's the best news that Jesus has come to save sinners by his own body and blood shed upon the cross to pay the debt which had been ours entirely. And then when we come back to this prayer, it is such that we are ever present of our sin, even daily and confessing to God. And yet at the same time, we are ever aware of our ongoing forgiveness, that even as Jesus gives this prayer to us before he goes to the cross, he knows that when we pray this after the cross, that his payment of our debt because of his great love for us will ever be present with us as an undeniable emblem of his love and an ongoing reality of his unending grace that being reminded even in prayer to the Father of our own perfections and indwelling wickedness, we are brought to a place of recognition that this gospel which saved us first is a daily gospel which continues to save us and of which we never depart from. This is where we begin to understand the depth of God's love for us. Do you understand that the sin that you have yet to commit, God already knew about it before you did it? That even the things that might shock you, the temper tantrum, the this and that, were already known by Christ and paid by Christ when he died for you. That even as Jesus teaches us to pray this, he knows that my blood will be sufficient for all of it. The gospel is really very simple in this sense. John Newton said it near the end of his life. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I mean, this is what we pray all of the time, because there's a deep need which is more than that of bread and a provision which is greater than it, for Jesus Christ really is the bread of life to the Christian. He is sufficient to forgive all of us and all of everything 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that's prayer, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that forgiveness also has ramifications outward. And this Christianity, which does not deny our own sin, likewise does not deny that we will sin against each other and harm one another as well. And there is that sense of debt when someone sins against you. You get hurt. It takes time to yield. You get betrayed. You get gossiped about. You get ripped off. You get lied to. You get lied about. You get devalued. You get abused. You pay a debt because of someone's actions or thoughts against you. And it is within the same breath of God's forgiveness of us that we pray because we cannot do it on our own. We pray that we ourselves are so moved by God's forgiveness of us that we are then able to forgive others in much the same way. And this is where there's no more faking it. This is where the rubber of the gospel hits the road of our real lives because each of us are going to be wronged. And even in prayer, we do not deny that wrong. We don't dress it up. We feel every little ounce of it. And yet, by the grace of God, we can, over time, by peering into Jesus, actually forgive people who incurred a debt against us because we know that our sins against God, which are forgiven in Christ, are ever more numerous than anyone who sins against one of us. Who is the one who is in your debt because of their sin? We must frequently and consistently bring this before the Lord in prayer. And finally, last phrase, Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation. This is a real desire for practical holiness. We don't want temptation because we know that temptation can often lead us into sin. And we don't want to sin against the Father. Pardon and forgiveness, it always leads to a desire for holiness. We're forgiven of sin, and we don't want to commit that stuff anymore. This prayer shows to us that also that we should not have inflated views of our own spiritual strength. I can handle. I can go into here. I can do this. No, we should constantly be wary of where and when we are drawn into sin, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love is what we often sing because we know the reality. And here it is that we pray to the Father, Lord, I know I am weak. I know that I slip. I have no strength of my own apart from you. Please lead me away from that which would tempt me to dishonor you. It's not just forgiveness. It is holiness and sanctification that we want, that we would not be drawn to anything that would separate us from our fellowship with our God. You know, oftentimes we might not pray like this because to be real, we like temptation. It feels kind of good because we are in a place spiritually where we really want to enjoy the sin that God hates. And that's why, brothers, we must pray with all our might against it because this is not God's will for your life. And the God who does not tempt any of us, James 1.13, is the same God who will always provide an escape from temptation, 1 Corinthians 10.13, if we just desire and we just pray for it. And so prayer again. It is a spiritual measure of men and women in a way that nothing else is. J.R. Packer. 
And so how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face, which is why the Son of God, our Lord, teaches us to pray like this. Now, before we close, quickly, I want you to notice just one thing. All of these things are in the first person plural. Give us this day. Forgive us. There was never in the mind of these Christians this individualized Christianity where it's just me and God. Teach us how to pray. It was always collective and corporate. One of the reasons why we talk about church membership so much and committing yourself to a body is because the New Testament over and over is about us as a family before our Father, not just me and the Father and you and the Father separate from each other. We are meant to be in community as the family of God together praying for each other in much of this same way. Would you please join me in prayer as we close? Oh, Father, would you please glorify yourself in this word applied into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ might more and more be everything to us. Lord, we pray against the danger that is always filling our minds with more information. Lord, we don't want to just learn about prayer. We want to be a people of prayer and understand the power that you gave your son even as someone who is truly human and yet truly God. As to the power of prayer in his life, would you replicate that in ours as well, that you might maximize the fruit, maximize the glory we as a church family can bring to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.